0: Internet and Financial Radio Network, Voice America Business.
1: Welcome to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers. Leaders are the heartbeat of any organization. Let Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler show you what it takes to become a top 10% performer in your organization. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Greenberg
2: and Dr. Nadler. Welcome to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers, co-hosted by Dr. Kathy Greenberg, and I'm Dr. Riley Nadler. Kathy won't be up with us on this show, but we are your leadership development coaches. Between Kathy and I, we've helped thousands of leaders and executives to perform in the top 10%. Today's episode is really going to be looking at emotions, deception, what can we tell by looking at someone's face around deception, and how does that tie into leadership. Uh, in a time when we were all studying the candidate's For the primaries as our future leaders, what can their face tell us in addition to their words? What are the key emotions uh, you can tell from reading someone's face? What are the clues that tell you someone is lying? And what does the latest research tell us about emotions across cultures? These will be the questions um, that we'll focus on on this show. Kathy and I want to bring you the best in current leadership topics, interviews of proven leaders and provide an evidence-based best practices to help you develop more leaders in your organization. We know leaders are the heartbeat of the organization. Most leaders underestimate just how much influence they have over others, and thus they and their teams underperform. Doing just a few things differently can drastically improve your performance in your organization. In these shows, some of the things that you'll learn is how to develop more leaders, in your organization, what happy companies know about performance, emotional intelligence and positive psychology strategies, brain and neuroscience contributions to top performance, generation and gender differences, we'll also cover work-life balance practices, strategies for managing your boss, self-management tools uh, to be your best, plus many more tools and tips. Today, in a a few moments, I'm going to bring on Dr. David Matsumoto, and he is the CEO and Research Director for the Ekman Training Group and Professor of Psychology and Director of the Culture and Emotion Research Laboratory at San Francisco State University. He is a worldwide expert on emotions and facial expressions. Dr. Matsumoto has studied culture, emotion, social interaction, and communication for over 20 years. He has approximately 400 works in these areas. In one of his well-known books is Culture and Psychology, People Around the World. Now, before we bring on Dr. Matsumoto, I want to just go through some uh, basic leadership principles that we want to make sure that all our listeners know. One is that you can improve performance by as much as 77% while increasing your life and professional satisfaction by as much as 50% with coaching, executive coaching. You can improve increase profit by creating coaching networks inside your company in just one day. Studies have shown that happiness is tied to profit by more than 93%. We're also going to talk about uh, leaders and leadership. Leaders have 50 to 70% influence over the climate of their team. So how clear are the goals, Um, teamwork, rewards, those kind of things. We also know emotions are contagious, and leaders are the emotional thermostat for their team. If they're calm, cool, and collected, so is their team. If they're irritated, upset, terse, impatient, typically so are their team. And the keys to being a star performer are someone performing in the top 10%, and that is typically with emotional intelligence. As leaders move up the corporate ladder, 85% of their competencies for their success are in emotional intelligence domain when you compare that to either IQ or technical expertise. Why are we talking so much about leadership? You know, with leadership development news here, we know that leaders in the top 10% produce twice as much revenue to the organization as managers in the 11th through the 89th percentile. We also know that when you pair coaching and when it's added uh, to training, a person's productivity can be enhanced as high as 88%, while training alone is 22%. So really, when you add training and individualized coaching, productivity goes up. How do you go about this? We have a term that micro-initiatives create macro-impacts. So this show, we're really trying to highlight what are the small few things that you can do that can have drastic uh, results. If you're interested in uh, leadership and coaching with... Dr. Kathy Greenberg, you can reach her at www.h2cleadership.com for her happiness books, tools, speaking keynotes, leadership and coaching services. If you're interested in uh, leadership or coaching services from me, Dr. Rowan Adler, you can reach me at www.truenorthleadership.com for emotional intelligence books, tools, speaking keynotes, leadership and coaching boot camps. So now let me uh, give a little bit more extensive background for our guests and then we'll bring them on. We have a series of questions that we want to talk about with emotions and about deception and about leadership. Dr. Matsumoto uh, is an internationally acclaimed author and a psychologist. He received his BA from the University of Michigan in 1981 and subsequently earned his MA in 1983 and PhD in 1986 in psychology from University of California at Berkeley. Currently, he's a professor of psychology and the director of Culture and Emotion Research Laboratory at San Francisco State. He's been there since 1989. He has studied culture and emotion, and social interaction for uh, over 20 years. He has approximately 400 works in these areas. Um, he's the recipient of many rewards and honors in the field of psychology, including being named the. Uh, G. Stanley Hall Lecturer by the American Psychological Association. He's also the Senior Editor for Cambridge University Press Series on Culture and Psychology. He's also the uh, uh, well-known for his ability as a Judo coach and official. We'll ask him maybe a little bit about that. He holds a sixth degree black belt in Judo and a Class A coaching certificate uh, from the U.S. Judo Federation. So there's more about Dr. Matsumoto, but let's bring him on, David. Glad to have you Hi. on the show.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
2: Good. Well, we want to talk a little bit about um, some of your background, and I know uh, from our conversations before you worked with Dr. Paul Ekman, and maybe you can talk about that um, relationship and just kind of a, your your background and how that got started.
3: Sure. Well. Uh, Paul Ekman and I have known each other for gee, it must be twenty-seven years now. Okay, uh, I was actually one of his graduate students back. Uh, I started with him in nineteen eighty-one, and um, I, although he was at UC San Francisco, I was a graduate student at UC Berkeley. <clears throat> Excuse me, and um, that was a time when uh, when graduate students at Berkeley were allowed to to seek out faculty at other universities mm-hmm. to do research. And I sought him out before I came here, actually, to San Francisco, and uh, he invited me over to his laboratory, and I went, and uh, we struck up a relationship where he taught me uh, uh, many, many things. And then I subsequently worked in his laboratory as a research assistant from, gee, I think it must be the fall of 81 through the time I got my my doctoral dissertation done, which was in 1986. Uh Uh-huh. And then I uh I became a faculty member myself first at the Wright Institute and then at San Francisco State University but ever since graduating we've continued to work together as colleagues and collaborators on research and writing and uh over the years we've become very good friends and and partners as well and so we've had a very long and productive and and uh, great relationship
2: you know um for for a lot of our our listeners, they may not know much I mean they will know after if we you and I finish talking, but about uh Paul Ekman about the studies and what was it that that initially interests you in his work, and then maybe you can talk a little bit about what what actually that work is
3: well, that's a great question you know um when I first learned- i was an undergraduate at the University of Michigan, and I had this i uh when i was when I was in the program there, I had to do a, a research project for my degree, and um, I was just interested in myself in in, the re- in why kids, especially young kids and infants, could understand the emotions of their parents and other adults around them, even though they couldn't understand the words. Hmm. And so, I and, and you know, I just I've just had this long interest in that question, and I, I kind of happen to like kids and working with kids and whatnot, and so. When I had when I was asked to do a research project for my degree, I did my project centered on that question. So I did some research in my uh in my third and fourth years as an undergraduate at Michigan and because it was on that topic, um, you know, I was I did some research on it and uh and got some degree of expertise in it. And so when I went to graduate school uh here to Berkeley, my advisor back at Michigan said, Well, you know, when you go to Berkeley, if you're interested in this emotion stuff, why don't you look up this guy Ekman? Because he's pretty well known in that. Hmm. And and so it was just as, as as fortuitous and and lucky as that that just uh, turned me on to to looking up Dr. Ekman and seeing up seeing what kind of research he, he did and what he was doing. Okay. So then, um, to tell you the truth, be, between between the summer in the summer, between the undergraduate and graduate. Uh, my undergraduate and graduate educations, I happened to be back home, which is in Hawaii, and I wrote Paul Ekman a letter saying, hey, I'm going to be in grad school, and uh, I've done this, this undergraduate thesis on this topic, and my advisor suggested I meet you, and so would you like to meet? And, <laughs> you know, he happened to write me back, and this was the days when, there, you know, there's no email. Right. Everything, we actually, yeah, we actually wrote letters, typed letters out and, and put a stamp on them and actually used the uh, the mail service. And uh-huh. <clears throat> Anyway, he wrote me back and said, yeah, when you show up, uh, call me up and look me up and come on over. And so I did. And, um, you know, it was just as fortuitous as that that started my career. Now, Ekman, in response to your question, uh, yes. had just completed uh, several years previous to that, this amazing um, uh, uh, research that uh, demonstrated the universality of certain facial expressions of emotion. And uh, he had gained quite a lot of notoriety in the field of psychology because of that and had then just completed the first round of his uh, uh, the, the creation of what is known as the facial action coding system. And,
2: and uh, because we're going to have to go to break is a good place to, to stop, and because I we do want to pick up on, because uh, I know a lot of listeners may not be familiar with the work, really what is the facial coding system, um, and then we'll go through some of the other questions. So you're listening to Leadership Development News, and we'll be right back talking with Dr. David Matsumoto.
0: The bottom line in business, Voice America Business.
5: once upon a time, there lived three energy hogs. Now, an energy hog is what you have when humans waste energy. One day, the three energy hogs set out to find themselves a cottage. Let's look for leaky windows, said the first energy hog, for he knew that would waste energy. Let's look for leaky doors, said the second. Let's look for a swing set, said the third, for he had more blubber than brains. So they set off down the road. Presently, they came upon a tiny cottage where dwelled a clever girl named Dreadilocks. I hope it has leaky windows, cried right, the first energy hog. I hope it has leaky doors. Cried the second. I hope the bathroom, cried the third, for only his brains were smaller than his bladder. But Dreadylocks liked playing cool games at EnergyHog.org. And from EnergyHog.org, she learned how to use energy wisely. So the three energy hogs were forced to look elsewhere to waste energy and had to use the disgusting restroom at the gas station down the road. And the moral of the story is to use energy wisely, log on to EnergyHog.org or Waste Not, Hog Not. This public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council.
4: Homeowners, Homeowners. real estate investors, Investors. bankers. Bankers. Listen up and tune in to Finance, Foreclosures, and Foresight, the show that breaks it all down and gives it to you straight. Are you at risk of foreclosure? Interested in buying a foreclosed property? Mark Bull has the answers to the questions you might forget to ask. Finance, Foreclosures, and Foresight broadcasts live on the Voice America Business Channel Monday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific. You can't afford not to tune in.
0: The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business.
1: Listening to Leadership Development News, Profiles and Practices of Top Performers, with your hosts, Doctors Kathy Greenberg and Riley Nadler. We know you have leadership questions that you're just dying to ask, so call us toll free at 1 866 472 5790. That number again is 1 866 472 5790.
2: Now, let's get back to the show. This is Leadership Development News with Dr. Kathy Greenberg and Dr. Rowling Adler. Kathy's not with us today, but we're talking with Dr. David Matsumoto. We're talking about some of the research on facial expressions that he did with one of the world experts, uh, Dr. Paul Ekman, and now uh, Dr. David Matsumoto is one of the world experts. So, David, maybe you can tell, you know, for our audience, what what is this research really about and, you know, kind of break it down so we can kind of get a picture of what it is that you spend a good part of your career doing.
3: Sure. Well, the research started with the question of whether facial expressions of emotion and emotions themselves are universal or not. Mm-hmm. That question started with Darwin. And um, what happened was that Darwin, of course, has his theory of evolution. <clears throat> and when he was doing his research and writing on his theory of evolution, he actually uh, included a large portion of his work and thinking to the topic of emotions. Darwin actually thought that emotions and their expressions were universal to all people, regardless of race, culture, gender, nationality, age, religion, and whatnot.
2: <clears throat> and, so, and so that well, was really just from, from him studying in, in kind of theory.
3: Well, he he did have some data. So, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is that Darwin actually did a number of simple studies uh, on emotion and to test some of his ideas about not only about emotion, but about evolution in general. And so it wasn't entirely theoretical, but mainly theoretical.
2: So, just for an example, what were some of the studies they did? And then we can kind of see how that leads to Ekman's work.
3: Well, for example, Darwin Darwin, uh, did one of the first. Uh, kinds of studies that we call judgment studies, where he asked people all around the world to to tell him whether they've seen certain types of expressions uh, in in the cultures in which they live. Okay. And he found some data about embarrassment and crying, for example, on uh, from his colleagues that happen to be living in various cultures of the world.
2: <clears throat> so meaning that they saw some of the same things in embarrassment and crying? And that, yeah, that's that was, correct. You know, and universal. so he got
3: some... Yeah, okay. correct. And so he got some basic judgments uh, of of people's faces like that okay. from from colleagues and friends that he happened to know around the world. You know, so these are fairly simple studies that he did, but clearly it was uh, complementing his very large right. theoretical thinking about uh, yeah, about emotion and evolution. And then uh, maybe we'll kind
2: of walk us through a little bit of the history. Then, then how did uh, Paul Ekman get interested in this? Which you know, you're one of his proteges and he's uh, your mentor. How did he get interested in that?
3: Well, uh, you know, you know we'll, we'll, we'll go from Darwin, which is in the middle 1800s right. to the 1960s, and just jump over there. What happened was that during that time there was no uh, research evidence that Darwin was right or wrong, and with no research evidence, uh, the field kind of thought, well, maybe, maybe Darwin was incorrect. Maybe expressions and emotions are learned like a language. And, uh, you know, this thought was, was pretty predominant because of the anthropologists. Anthropologists had a very strong foothold in the social sciences, and they were saying that, you know, um, just as, as different cultures have different languages, they must learn the different language of facial expressions. Uh-huh. And, so they, and so Darwin could not be right. right. Around the 1960s, what happened was uh, Ekman came into to, uh, contact with another psychologist named Sylvan Tompkins, Mm-hmm. And Tompkins happened to believe that Darwin was right and Tompkins was just, you know, a very astute reader of the face. And uh, Tompkins wrote several very influential books on emotion and motivation in uh, that were published in 62 and 63. And when he met with Paul, he actually uh, and this is all these are all information that Paul gave me, <clears throat> Tompkins actually sat with Paul and and Paul showed him faces of people that uh, Tompkins had never seen before, and Tompkins was just making amazingly accurate judgments of these people, despite the fact that he had not known them, and and Ekman wondering why he could do this, asked Sylvan Tompkins, how did he do that? And Tompkins said, well, it's all in the face, here it is, and you can learn to read it like this. Mm-hmm. Well, Tompkins actually had uh, only his ideas, and Tompkins, but Tompkins persuaded Ekman to do some research to to see whether in fact Darwin was correct. And so that's how uh Paul actually got started into this to this research question about whether emotions and their expressions are universal or not. It's just he was he was uh convinced to do it by a f- uh, friend.
2: So so Tompkins um almost said, you know, if I can do this but it's one of these things that you know, he may have been a master at this. And then Ekman uh got encouraged by Tompkins, well let's see if if other people can do this and break it down.
3: Right, because Tompkins you know, Tom was doing it from entirely personal experience, and Ekman is a scientist, and so Ekman is, gonna, is, is the kind of guy who's going to want right. to see whether, things are, uh, whether that's true or not and whether that's true for everybody else or not. So the only way to resolve those kinds of questions is through doing studies. Right, right. Well,
2: one of the things that was interesting in just kind of reading some of the things about uh, your work and Ekman's work from one of the Gladwell articles was about the Papua New Guinea, uh, yeah. Tribes, the two different tribes, Maybe sure. you can tell just about that, and, you know, to kind of enlist, to uh, bring about what Tompkins' skills were.
3: Well, let me tell you um, the, the background to that is yeah. that one of the first studies Ekman did was take a bunch of photographs that he and Tompkins had selected that they thought were universal, <clears throat> and they took those photographs, Ekman took those photographs to uh, different countries and asked people in those countries what emotion did they think was being portrayed in the face. Now, if emotions were universal, if expressions were universal, then you would find, you expect to find that people all around the world would agree on what expressions were, were displaying. If the emotions, however, were culture-specific, mm-hmm. you would find that the cult- people of different cultures would disagree. And what they found was that the people of all of the cultures they went to agreed to a high degree uh, on the emotions that were portrayed in the faces. So that was the first evidence for mm. the universality of expression. Okay. <clears throat> now, what happened then was that uh, that work was critiqued, uh, and and Ekman thought that it would be critiqued uh, because all of the cultures that they studied initially happened to be industrialized, you know, relatively advanced cultures who might have learned to read those faces because of mass media, either through magazines or through Hollywood or through okay. the television news. So the only way to address that question, or one of the best ways to address that question, is to do a similar type of study like that in a culture that has no such visual access. And that led Ekman to wanting to do the study in Papua New Guinea.
2: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay. And I know what was interesting is in reading it, um, that Tompkins was able to distinguish which, which was the kind of the violent... Uh, right. murderous group right. by their face that had homosexual <clears throat> rituals for the pre-adolescent boys and which, which were the groups just by looking at their face were that uh, we know we not violent and were very uh, calm and kind of more of a loving group.
3: Right, well what's really interesting is that what you don't read in the, in the research reports is the fact that Ekman actually went uh, and spent uh, I think a couple of months living uh, with, with the tribe's people just mm-hmm. to find out whether he could do the research or not. And when he was there, he took, you know, lots and lots of film. Mm-hmm. And he could do that because these people didn't, uh, you know, weren't concerned with being videotaped or being filmed because they didn't know what a camera was. Right. We today would be, you know, self-conscious about being videotaped you know, mm. by somebody with a camera, but they didn't. And so he just brought back tons and tons of film. And he showed a lot of that to Tompkins, who who made those accurate judgments as you suggested?
2: Mm. So you, you just by looking at the face can find out which which people were the sweet and gentle ones and which ones were the more hostile just by their face. And, yes. And then so um, before we go to the next break, maybe talk about so what's the research that I know you were part of? and Ekman did to kind of really break this down to to be able to look at what was what are the uh, the emotions that you can see in the face and then they can how. How did he? How was that research initially done?
3: Well, what what happened was <clears throat> the next step was doing the, a similar type of study to, uh, to the one that I described earlier in New Guinea, where they showed people in New Guinea the faces of Westerners that they had never seen before, and they were able to make accurate judgments about what emotional states they were in. Mm. And then he took uh, films of the New Guineans, the tribes persons there. They came from two different tribes. Uh, when they were in different emotional states, brought those films back and showed those to Americans and asked Americans who had never seen the New Guineans what emotions were being portrayed, and the Americans all, uh, all judged that correctly. Hmm. So, so this was, this is a, this is a very crucial time and part of the research that showed the universality because you know, to, to demonstrate something that's universal, it's impossible to go to every single culture in the world. Right, right. And the rationale is to really go to sufficiently different cultures, where that you would you would be reasonably assured that it must be universal to be existing in all those different cultures. Mm. And, and here was a very different culture. And so when they and one showed... of the last studies during that time, Ekman actually went to Japan and did a study with American and Japanese kids. Uh, showing them very stressful films and actually measuring uh, the facial muscle movements—the muscles that moved on their faces when they were reacting to those uh, videos—and he showed that those faces between the Americans and the Japanese were exactly the same uh, like as well. So, that, so this is one of the earliest uh, studies there too. Okay, I mean in
2: one of our shows we we talked about the the sort of the brain chemistry and about this mirror neuron and you know that picks up the emotion. So what. What this study between the Japanese and American were able to show is people's reaction to the film were the same, and they were picking up the same emotion from the film and, and representing that on their face.
3: Yeah, that's correct. Now, what you're what you're referring to is really interesting because recent research has showed that when so, when somebody is having an emotion and they show it on their face, <clears throat> our faces or the faces of the people who are seeing it uh, oftentimes fire in, in the muscle yes. movements that that mirror the expression that you're looking at, and it may be a basis for understanding others emotionally. Yes,
2: and I think one of the other interesting things is, this is some of the work of Goleman, that over time when people keep mirroring each other, couples end up kind of looking more alike than they did than when they first met, and, and some of the theory is they've been mirroring each other's face, you know, back and forth, back and forth, uh, you know, thousands of moments that they start looking a little bit alike.
3: Right, and I think that's it's not only a mirroring image or a mirroring issue, but also uh, a complementary type of responding mm, okay. that's, a, that's occurring you know so it's not so for example, if your partner is showing you that they're sad or distressed um you know they're showing the sad and distress myself, <clears throat> maybe one type of response, but there are other ways of complementing that response, and so couples probably develop this way of co- of mirroring and then complementing yes. uh, each other's responses, e- e- emotional responses. Okay.
2: <clears throat> well, so I think what we we want to um, get to is, is then some of the uh, applications. I, I, so, first of all, you know, I can hear your excitement, and, and I'm sure just being able to find something like you're saying that's universal. There aren't that many things that are that we could say is universal. Um, but maybe before we go to the, the break, um, you can say, a little bit, of, what are some of the applications that, that some of this research is being used today?
3: Sure. Well, you're exactly right. The knowledge that science created that, the, that emotions and these certain expressions are universal has a wide range of application. Uh, the, you know, we've learned recently that we can teach people how to read uh, other people's faces And we can, can, we can teach them how to read not only faces that occur normally, but also emotions that are, are, that are being concealed in what we call micro expressions. Mm -hmm. And the ability to, to recognize other people's expressions, their regular expressions and their micro expressions, that is their sign of concealed emotions, has a wide range of application. Uh, In our, in our line of work, we, we are heavily involved with training people who are in the line of duty that have to do something with national security, whether it be in checkpoint scenarios or interviews or interrogations uh, of some sort. And uh, these people use our skills to help them understand the emotional bases, of the emotional states of the people that they're talking to, to make informed decisions about about the, uh, the individual. Hmm. So it's been used in, in various different ways and shapes and forms in the government. Right. To, to to try to keep the place a better place and a safer place but not only is it being used for national security uh people are using it in the health sectors uh for example i have given uh training on these skills to the mayo clinic which is the world's premier uh, uh you know medical facility in rochester minnesota uh, i've taught their medical students and their physicians how to read emotions in others and you know medical st- schools in- increasingly today are <clears throat> are teaching medical students how to interview uh people and right. interviewing skills is becoming a very large part of the curricula in many medical schools and nursing schools as it should be <clears throat> and so well reading the emotional states of their patients is an important task uh, it, build- it helps to build rapport it helps to see whether uh there's something that the person may be concealing Sometimes it's very difficult for patients to disclose everything. And uh, so sometimes uh, these skills would help the physicians to, do, to make those kinds of judgments and to elicit right. better information so they can make better diagnoses.
2: Well, So let's uh, come back to this because I think at least around the health applications, some of the security applications, uh, in a moment you're listening to Leadership Development News with Dr. Rowan Nadler and Dr. Kathy Greenberg. We're talking with Dr. David Matsumoto, and we'll be right back.
0: The bottom line in business, Voice America Business.
1: Before every word, there is a thought. Before every action, there is a thought. If everything starts with a leader, what happens when leaders around the world start to think and do things differently? I'm thinking the world will change. Evolve the leader. Evolve the company. Change the world. Join Susan Kavanaugh for Summit Speak. All Leaders Rise, Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern,
5: on the Voice America Business Channel adding fractions is nothing for real look these are denominators you multiply this one so that it's the same as that then you add them up man that's easy charles bennett dreamed of returning to the old neighborhood as a teacher but without money for college only half of his dream came true he's back in the old neighborhood well enough math i gotta deliver these sandwiches please support the united negro college fund a mind is a terrible thing to waste a message from the uncf and the ad council
0: The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business.
1: Listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Doctors Kathy Greenberg and Rillie Nadler. We know you have leadership questions that you're just dying to ask, so call us toll-free at one 866 472 5790 That number again is one 866 472 5790
2: Now let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Leadership Development News. We're talking with Dr. David Matsumoto about emotions and deception what you can read in someone's face and about leadership so before the break david you were talking about how physicians were using some of this uh information and Mm -hmm. maybe you could say a little bit about uh any given we're focusing on leaders uh has there been any applications to leadership hiring um you know those kind of things or knowing if someone is telling the truth
3: well, um, not by our group, and the only reason is because we are so busy uh, with with uh, our work in the government and our work in the health and uh, and mm-hmm. other sectors <clears throat> that we haven't had the time to branch out to them to that to, to that particular sector. Now, okay. let me let me say that I happen to believe that good leaders do have great emotional skills to begin with. Now, they may be they may have it naturally. Uh, or it may come gradually because of a lot of different types of experiences. But you know, good leaders, I think, can read the emotions of their of the people that they work with. Uh, can use mm-hmm. those emotions to motivate themselves. They can read their own emotions. They can simulate emotional states in themselves so that they can model uh, preferred behavior. Like you were saying at the beginning of this uh, segment. Right. Right. So yeah, I can. I believe that there is a huge application in the leadership field for the kinds of science and knowledge and the training and the skills that we have as well as other people have uh, we I'm just saying we haven't done it because we've been so right. busy with other stuff you know but this is yeah, yeah, certainly
2: but this is where your research and Ekman's research kind of overlaps with emotional intelligence now some of the brain science that you know there is a kind con- of convergence which now there's a lot of data uh, available more um, in 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 my world for leaders and for organizations to better use a, better have relationships one of the one of the keys that we talk about is that 50 percent of your life satisfaction comes from your relationship with your boss and so you know how can you how can you read their emotions and know when to approach or know when to appropriately mirror that so uh, very very helpful
3: now well those are those are crucial skills not only for leaders but as you're saying now for the people who work with the leaders and you know it's uh, and I really agree with what you said earlier. I think leaders really set a tone as to uh, not only for the emotional climate, if you will, of the group that they're working with, but whether it's okay for the people who are re- who they're working with to re- respond emotionally to the leader themselves. Yeah, and that whole that sets a whole a whole cycle. And of course, I'm probably preaching to the choir <laughs> and you there, but uh, yeah, I, I think you're right on the mark on that.
2: Well, and I think the part that you also mentioned, and that we work with leaders a lot with, are they aware of what's going on for them? And what emotions they're having, so that they can better manage that. So for the whole uh, right self-management. But so, right. So now, what are the? You said there are universal uh, emotions. Which which ones did you find um, that are universal?
3: Well, let me let me let me suggest that um, there are many different types of emotions that are universal. That is, that they exist in people all around the world. Okay. There is only a small set of them, however, that are universally expressed and recognized. All right. So the ones that are universally expressed and recognized that research has found to be so, uh, there are only seven of them. They happen to be anger, contempt, disgust, fear, enjoyment, sadness, and surprise. So the research is very clear that these seven emotions uh-huh. uh, are universally expressed and recognized in the face. Let me just
2: make sure I may have missed one. Anger, contempt, disgust, fear, enjoyment, surprise, and was the other? Sadness. And, oh, sadness. Okay. <clears throat> so those right. are the ones, and I, <clears throat> what I appreciate about your, your work, David, um, and, and how well you said it, not that there aren't other emotions, but these are the ones that can be recognized And expressed, and and so you've seen these seven across across cultures.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, back to the first point. I I believe shame and guilt and embarrassment, uh, love, jealousy. You know, I I believe those are emotions. I happen to believe they're different types of emotions. Uh, But it's also clear that the research to date has not shown that any other emotion is universally expressed and recognized. That is, and that any other emotion has a universally recognized or reliable signal. Mm. The research to date is very clear that the only emotions that have a reliable signal are the seven that I mentioned. Okay.
2: <clears throat> and it has a reliable signal going back to that there, you, you can recognize it. And, and there's yeah, a you signal. can
3: recognize them. and the, They're reliably produced okay. uh, and they're reliably recognized. And then you said the other
2: ones like shame, guilt, jealousy. You believe they're emotions, but they're a different kind of emotions. What 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 are they? You know, or how are they different?
3: Well, for one thing, they don't. So far, the research has not shown that they have a, you know, a reliable signal. So, uh, you know, or at least in the face. Now, it may be that some of these other emotions may have reliable signals in other nonverbal channels, like in the voice or posture or gesturing and whatnot. Mm-hmm. There is some. Uh, so, some evidence out there to suggest that an emotion known as pride can be universally recognized and and uh, hmm. <clears throat> produced, but you know the, the the research on that is is still in its infancy, especially when compared to the research on the on the seven universals. Okay,
2: <clears throat> so seven universals. Just to repeat: anger, uh, contempt, disgust, fear, enjoyment, surprise, and sadness. Those ones can be recognized and are expressed in, in the face. And when we talk about kind of cross cultural. You know, how many different cultures have you have you studied?
3: Well, um, I myself, well, I, I don't know, I've studied a lot of them. I can tell you that in my last study, which was of uh, um, uh, Olympic athletes, <clears throat> at the 2004 Athens Olympic Games, I studied the expressions of the athletes in the medal matches. These are matches that are going to determine a gold, silver, or bronze medal, mm-hmm. or no medal. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that study, I, I examined the expressions of these athletes who are in the medal match. That particular study looked at uh, people, 84 people, from 35 different countries all around the world. Mm-hmm. And what you find is that the, the, the expressions reliably differentiate uh, those who win from those who lose, uh-huh. and uh, there's no country or cultural differences in, in those reactions.
2: Okay, and so just generally, I, I imagine for... The winners, there was enjoyment, um, maybe surprise. Um, what did you see in some of the, let's say, the second and third place finishers?
3: Well, you know, the third place finisher. Well, well, we study judo because I have access to the judo venues in okay. the Olympics. But um, the way it goes is that <clears throat> in the gold medal match, the winner is the gold medalist and the loser is the silver medalist. Right. Then there's a bronze medal match, and so the bron- the winner of that w- takes a bronze medal, right. and the loser of that goes home without a medal. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so if you look at the gold medalists and the bronze medalists, both of them have won their mat- last matches and have gotten the medal. Right. So more often than not, the, the those medalists are showing true signs of enjoyment. We call these Duchenne smiles. These are smiles that involve the, the innervation not only of the smiling muscle, but also the muscle around the eyes. <clears throat> okay. Now, the silver medalists. it's very interesting because <clears throat> although these individuals have won a silver medal, which is a truly amazing accomplishment, no one is happy. Okay. No one is happy. Nobody's, uh, they they tend to show either sadness or uh, anger, mm. some disgust, and some of them show nothing. Okay. Uh, he's probably trying to be a, a good loser, you know?
2: Right, right, right.
3: <clears throat> so you get a variety of reactions. No, none of the silver medalists ever smile at the end of a match when they won a silver medal. Hmm, that's very interesting. So they're not, at
2: some level, not satisfied and don't have that same enjoyment. Also talks about kind of, the Olympics, you know, that there's this one, one winner where silver medal may not see themselves as a... As
3: oh, a, you know, you can talk to silver medalists later on who, even though later on they'll, they'll gain some perspective and be happy about their performance, there's always a little edge about what that's if, that's and all. it okay. could have been, you know. And uh, right. some, people, some people have those kinds of what we call counterfactual thinking okay. for years. Right, right. You know, and it motivates some of them to go back and try it again.
2: Well we're gonna to go to our, our last break and maybe when we come back we, we can we can talk about we're in the middle here of some primaries. What are some of the things looking at some different expressions that people who we don't know the candidates, but you may be able to help just you know what are some of the things to look for about credibility, just some universal sure. signs. Sure. And this is leadership development news and we'll be right back. The bottom line in business, voice America
0: business.
5: Let's sing that bedtime song. Rock-a-bye, baby, by
3: Newton's treetop. His first law of
2: motion, make sure you won't stop. The same rules of physics apply
4: to a ball, while gravity is a force that makes things fall. By the sixth grade, many girls lose interest in math and science, but it's never too early to set your daughter's future in motion. For some simple ideas, go to girlsgotech.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Girl Scouts of USA and Ad Council. The
0: Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business.
1: You're listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers with your hosts, Doctors Kathy Greenberg and Riley Nadler. We know you have leadership questions that you're just dying to ask, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5790. That number again is 1-866-472-5790. Now, let's get back
2: to the show. Welcome back to Leadership Development News with Dr. Kathy Greenberg, Dr. Riley Nadler, Kathy's not here with us today, but we're talking with uh, Dr. David Matsumoto. And before the break, we're talking about the key uh, emotions that can be expressed and, and recognized. And now we want to talk about are there some kind of signs, signals, as we are studying and learning about you know, primary candidates, both Democratic and Republican, without mentioning names, but are there some universal things, you know, because we're all trying to kind of decide, are they credible? And David are there some things that, that we should be looking out for?
3: well sure I, let, let me let me say first, um, you know I, I, I prefer well, and we actually our, our, our group actually has a policy that we not comment on people who are actually sitting in office or running for an office, mm-hmm. but let me tell you a little bit about the research okay. that informs that question Good <clears throat> uh, the, you know our group has conducted study and when I say our group, it's Paul Ekman myself and Mark Frank at. Uh, Suny Buffalo State University of New York Buffalo. Uh, we've done uh, the bulk of the research in the field that has examined the kinds of nonverbal behaviors that that people enlist, uh, emit when they are in uh, emotionally <clears throat> challenging situations, and they're either telling the truth or not. Mm-hmm. And the research is very clear that uh, let me dispel any notions right now. There's no there's no Pinocchio's nose. Okay. There's no one nonverbal clue that is always a sign of a person lying. Okay. Uh, that is really clear from our research, and, uh, and we've done the bulk of the behavioral research in the, in, the, in the world, and so we are fairly confident or very confident about that. So, and, you know, our, the reason why I'm stressing that is because some people go out and say, well, this is, you know, when, when a person's eyes flutter for more than five times, it's guaranteed to be a sign of lying. Well, we've tested all those kinds of things. Mm. And we know that there's no one reliable sign of a person lying or telling the truth.
2: So, so maybe we can debunk a couple of things. So, I've heard some of this, so eyes fluttering or blinking. That one's not conclusive.
3: Other oh, yeah, absolutely not. The other one that you hear a lot is well, watching where people are looking when you ask them a question. Okay. And if they look away, uh, uh, you know, one of the stereotypes are out there is that that's a sign of lying as well. uh uh-huh. <clears throat> Well, that's not true. What's uh, w- w- clear from the research is that when a person looks away, it's often a sign that the person is thinking. Mm-hmm. They're doing some kind of mental searches. Right, right. Uh, on top of that, there are cultures out there where looking directly at a person when you're talking to them is disrespectful. Mm. And so a lot of people from other cultures, uh, especially towards higher higher status or authority figures, look down when you're talking to them. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in this culture, it is stereotypically thought that, well, that's a sign of lying, but that you know, in another culture, that's a sign of respect. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, it's very clear that those kinds of signs are 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 not single reliable signs of lying. So okay. I also
2: I also what, heard you know that someone touching their their nose, kind of the Pinocchio effect. So that's that's yeah that's yeah, not, yeah, yeah. That's not a reliable one either.
3: Well, no, there's okay. there's all kinds of stories out there that people talk about in order to. Well, I don't know why people make a lot of stories like that, but there, none of that has okay. been shown to be true in research. Okay, so what are some of the signs?
2: And again, it's kind of an interpretive, and I know I, I went through your your training, which maybe at the end you can talk a little bit about, where sure. you would be seeing things, and some of the most obvious things are someone stumbling, looking away. Everybody thought that that person was lying, and that, and that was one of the examples, I think it was one of them, of a Danish person. -hmm. When they they weren't lying and they were telling the truth, they were just feeling really uncomfortable.
3: Yeah. Well, one of the things that's pretty clear from our research, and and we've done, we've published a number of papers, and and Paul Eckman has a couple of books on this, is that when people are, are, are telling a lie or fabricating a story, more often than not, and, and it's got to be in an emotional situation mm-hmm. uh, because we study people who are in emotional situations. So okay. what I'm about to say is true for those kinds of situations. It's very clear. The research is also clear that what I'm about to say is not true when you're talking about a situation no one cares about. Okay, you know, little white lies. They they don't have the tells. There there's no tell in a little, little white lie. All right. So we're studying situations that are that are that have high stakes, that are emotional. That it means something to the person if they're if they're, they're caught or not caught, mm-hmm. and in those situations, what you find is that when people are telling the truth, there's some kind of consistency between their their verbal output, their you know their words, and their nonverbal behaviors. Mm-hmm. When people are telling a lie, there's a greater amount of inconsistency between those things. Okay, and so what we what we help people to do is to be able to read the nonverbal behaviors and especially the facial expressions and to compare that or evaluate that to the verbal output that is being produced to see whether something is making sense or not. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if a person is saying yes but nodding their head no, well, there's a little discrepancy there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, most of the time when we're telling the truth, if you say yes and you're nodding your head yes, then then you're getting messages that are consistent with each other. Now, so, so, so oftentimes when people are lying in a high-stakes situation, the nonverbal and verbal messages may be inconsistent with each other. Now, let me also say that the inconsistency is not always a sign of the lie. It's just a sign that something's going on. Okay. And so thus, it, it, so it takes the skill of an interviewer at that point to come back, to remember, that, to see it first, to come back to it, to ask about it, and to dig a little more on this particular issue, we know that something's going on. So, so there's no... Kind of reactive
2: responses, aren't they, where the, where the person doesn't have control over it?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially when you're looking at emotional reactions um, that, you know, people signal emotions when they're talking. They, I, I doubt that most people are, are aware that they're doing it, but they do. Okay. <clears throat> and so, when people have emotions, oftentimes the reactions are immediate Unconscious and mm-hmm. automatic. Okay. Like I say, they don't realize they're doing it. And so when you're talking with somebody or you're watching videotape, you can hear the words, but you can also see these reactions that the person probably doesn't know that they're that they're producing.
2: And then maybe, you know, are there a couple examples that you can give us? I know um, we watched some interesting things with Cato Caitlin and some other things, but are there any ones that kind of stand out that you could... Describe of an inconsistency.
3: <laughs> You're asking me a loaded question there, my friend, because uh, w- w- there's a lot of examples that we have, but a lot of it has to do with um, uh, property that's proprietary oh, okay. or things that are in the legal system or okay. things that are provided to us in the government, and so it's uh, you know, and that happens to be the bulk of the, the yeah. kinds of things I have. Um, it's a little difficult to talk about those kinds of okay things. as examples.
2: All right, good. Well, I appreciate that. So I know some of them is where where you're really able to slow down from your research, slow down, and it, is it a sixteenth of a second that you're slowing it down to where where, and then you're able to freeze it, and that's where you can see some of these these reactive micro expressions.
3: Exactly. I mean, one of the one of the things that we we train people to see are these immediate unconscious reactions that occur so fast that okay. unless you're trained to see them you would never see them and we call those things micro expressions they are okay. signs of concealed emotions and and because they're signs of concealed emotions they are important to know they, they, they're telling you that there's something going on that's important to this person right. and that you might want to find out about
2: so maybe in, in this last we we're getting down to the last uh... thirty forty seconds I know you have some trainings. I've been a part of that, but maybe you can mention some of the trainings and some of the CDs that you have for people that are interested in this training, and basically you know, in, a, in an hour or so, you can recognize a lot of these microexpressions, right?
3: Right. We have, <clears throat> we have a number of uh, training programs and products. Uh, <clears throat> we, uh, we do a lot of instructor-led workshops on the topics of reading people, reading nonverbal behavior, reading emotions, and evaluating truthfulness. <clears throat> Uh, when people have those kinds of interests, they can just email me or find us on the web at com. and we also have online tools that teach people how to read micro expressions and And you can also go to that same website, com, and find out more about that.
2: Okay. Well, this has been um, very fascinating and I know it's it's kind of a rich field that's only going to expand more so, but really appreciate your uh, willingness to come and Talk to us about this and kind of shed light on, on these expressions and how it deals with leadership, how it deals with deception, and just you know, understanding more about these emotions.
3: Well, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
2: Thank you. And this has been uh, Leadership Development News, uh, Dr. Relly Nadler and Dr. Kathy Greenberg. And next week we'll be talking a little bit more about emotional intelligence and one of the founders who coined the term emotion, the emotional quotient. So thanks a lot, and we'll uh, be speaking with you folks again. You've
1: been listening to Leadership Development News, profiles and practices of top performers, with your hosts, Doctors Kathy Greenberg and Riley Nadler. We sincerely hope that you're leaving us today with some great ideas and inspiration from today's top leaders. Join us again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Business Channel.